This is Josie Brown with Author Provocateur. In Black Coral, master magician and prolific novelist Andrew Maine's second thriller of his Sloan McPherson series, Maine's Take No Prisoners detective, a diver with her police force's newly formed underwater investigation unit, stumbles across a submerged car in an alligator-infested canal. It turns out that the bodies inside belong to four missing persons, teenagers presumed runaways. This decades-long cold case is just one piece of a string of similar vanishings. And if Sloan's team is correct, the work of a serial killer hiding in plain sight. But Sloan will do anything to catch him, even if it means being his perfect victim. Andrew and I discuss how Sloan's unorthodox past makes her an unlikely, albeit a successful detective. How he channels his Florida childhood to create stories about the secrets that lie beneath the water's edge. And we also talk about his own ties to law enforcement and how his profession as a master illusionist has helped form his approach for writing tight, taut, suspenseful novels. I want to congratulate you on this fabulous, fabulous book. I enjoyed it thoroughly from start to finish. I wish I were Sloan. I'm sure every woman who reads this will, <laughs> will wish it to, particularly the fact that she does not let go. She allows herself to let loose, which is really kind of fun in a book. So um, you've channeled us well. You've channeled us well. <laughs> she's, she's fun. She's based on a couple people I know. So that's, you know, kind of made it easier to sort of write that character. You started off the story with a bang. I mean, here you are, you know, recovering a body from a submerged car in an alligator-infested lake. <laughs> and, you know, your protagonist, Sloane McPherson, she's a detective and a diver in a new police unit called the Underwater Investigative Unit. And, you know, lo and behold, she notices another submerged car, which turns out to hold four bodies that are from a decades-old disappearance, and they're four teenagers. And from this very, very cold case, grows a hunt for a serial killer who is still active. I mean, how did this come to you? A lot of it's based on things that actually happened in Florida. There really was a cold case of four teenagers that went missing after going to a concert. And decades later, they found their vehicle in a canal. And the assumption had been that they had run away. And that turned out not to be what happened. Florida is also crazy weird in that, you know, we have canals and lakes and ponds everywhere, and you dive down into one, you're going to find something. And as I was writing this, uh, in the middle of writing this, and this is tragic, was somebody was looking at a satellite photo of a neighborhood in Florida and noticed a rectangular object in a lake in a community and said, that looks like a car. Uh, they found an actual car in there just by some person sleuthing online and they found a car with a person inside of there and it was another you know missing persons case oh. and i think this may have been an elderly person who probably got lost or whatever but there are just crazy sort of stories like that in florida and so all i had to do is just take a few of them and put a thread between them wow wow so sad um yeah your police procedure seems pretty spot on um how hard was the research for you? Do you have great connections on this? And where did you take creative license? So whenever I write something law enforcement related, I like to kind of come up with the reasons to sort of expedite or sort of shorten the time frame of things. 
And that's why often I'll put people into special teams or in special investigative units. It's just, it's kind of the device so that I can sort of sidestep, you know, like that's not the way it's done. And I grew up in a family of police officers. My father was an ATF agent. My brother's in the FBI. So a conversation around the dinner table, I didn't know how atypical it really was. Because, you know, my father would be talking about, you know, you know, when he had to go testify in court or, you know, people he had to subpoena or when they did a raid and knocked out. We, I remember my dad welding one of those devices to knock down a door in, you know, knockdown thing in the garage. <laughs> it's, it's, it was normal. And so, you know, growing up in that environment and, you know, and the other side of it, too, is like my father is the most compassionate person I know. And I remember when I was a kid, you know, my brother and I getting into some sort of dispute and my dad telling me and my brother, like, no matter who somebody is, they deserve your respect. And he had to transport some prisoner to testify. And this guy hadn't like bathed for a week and whatnot. And my dad was in a van with my OEC. And my dad's like, I never said anything. I never criticized this person. It doesn't matter that he's a criminal because he's still a person. He still has rights and still should be treated with respect. And that other side of it, there's one one part of it was sort of the cop talk. But the other part of it was the compassionate talk of saying that just because somebody's broken the law, just because of this, or you suspect them of this, doesn't mean they're no longer a person. And that's what I try to view in all my characters is one, I got the procedural part from my dad and my brother. But the other part of it was kind of the humanist sort of approach towards policing, which I liked, which I think we need to see more of. Right. I thought you created that in all of your characters even the ones that were kind of hard asses were hard asses for a reason, you know, from whatever they've seen or whatever they've been through. But I also saw through what you had done that when they were off in the wrong direction, they would listen to reason as to, you know, hey, maybe we're looking at the wrong guy for the wrong reason. And here's why there wasn't this like total bullheaded political agenda thing happening. Mm hmm. You know, in, in any field, there are people who are good at what they do. There are people who are bad. There are people sometimes good. There are sometimes people who, when stressed, don't make the best decisions. And I, I like to, you know, for my, my protagonist kind of characters, I try to give them that kind of dimension. And I've done that in some of my other books, too. I have my Theo Cray series, and you know, he's a computational scientist, a biologist, rather, who hunts serial killers. And he's neat because I get to put this complete outsider looking into a situation and how he sees things. Um, and, you know, I can sort of do that a bit, but remember, I write first-person POV, so everything's going to be from the point of view of Sloan, and I have to call attention to things that may be counter to what she's observed, sometimes to what other people say, or have them be revelations to her. Right, and that is great because the reader is seeing things through her eyes, so whatever is revealed to her is also revealed to them at the same time, which is kind of great because all of a sudden it ratchets up the tension. Yeah, and it's it's fun too though, because you can do things where, you know, the audience can be aware of traits that she's not aware of. And that's something I'd played with my Theo Cray character, sort of saying, like, I'm gonna drop some clues here about what he doesn't realize about himself. And with Sloan, like, she's really brash. She's really brash. And for her to become a really effective detective, she's good now, but she could be great if she learns that balance. Right, right. One of the most, um, I would say, threatening characters you've created was Big Bill. <laughs> I assume there's a lot of Big Bills out there. I mean, uh, tell me this before I plan any vacations to Florida. So uh, Big Bill is an alligator, and he, he is in the story a few times. And I love alligators. Like, alligators 
have been around since the dinosaurs and they're fearsome looking they're you know the threatening looking but particularly the alligator uh, you know crocs can be a little bit different alligators they kind of just want to be left alone they just want to do their own thing and i throw in some statistics in there about like the population of alligators in florida how it's way more than people realize and we've had bad encounters like there used to be a place i used to go jogging and i didn't go for several months and while i wasn't there a woman got attacked by an alligator because she probably startled him in the morning and it's you know terrifying sort of thing but those for how close we are to alligators the negative interactions with them are exceedingly rare and they're still just you know amazing and so big bill i wanted to kind of put you know kind of we have some very big alligators in florida and you have some very big ones that if you'd never seen an alligator before you'd be like dinosaur you know and i thought hey let me write in kind of a you know a legendary sort of florida alligator kind of a version of one wow it's makes things complicated for Sloan. <laughs> right. It makes things very complicated for her. And I won't give anything away. But, you know, she does have a close encounter of a scary yes. kind. So and, it, and points where you're going, why? Why? Why are you doing this? That's what I love about her is you understand it. You're with her. But then she does something. And you're like, I, I don't know. <laughs> I also um, appreciate the wonderful team you've created for her. You know, you've got her boss who is George Solar, I, I assume that's pronounced mm -hmm. right. And, you know, he's a recently retired detective, but he's now heading the special unit. And there's also another, a new addition to their team whose name is Scott Hughes, and he's also a diver detective, but he's got an interesting background. There's a not hard, but kind of cold analytical side to him. But at the same time, there is a, a warmth to him that comes out when you show the family man in him. You know, this is like two sides of the law enforcement professional in my mind is, you know, the cold analytical, but then the reason they do the jobs that they do that a lot of us would never do is because they want to see justice happen. They will work their butts off for that to happen, but they also are humanistic in their efforts. Yeah, you you have to sort of look at like why does somebody you become a paramedic. You know, why does a doctor work the emergency room shift or a nurse? You know, why does a firefighter run into a burning building? Why do people do these things? These are dangerous jobs. And uh, I, I think skepticism towards authority is a healthy thing, but it's turned into sort of a cynicism, which I think is frustrating. And I think that we need to sort of address why people do things. And that's one of the things I liked about, you know, being able to write is I can explore different personality types and what motivates them. And, and Hughes is a guy who very much wants to do the right thing. And, you know, he's young, joined the military, or, you know, joined the uh, you know, actually Navy, became a, you know, a diver there and had experience, combat experience, whatnot, came out, went into law enforcement and has to sort of navigate this world of, you know, what's right and what's wrong. And there's what people tell you to do versus what he thinks is right. And then he, he works with Sloan, who is just this wholly original thinker. And, you know, he has to sort of realign how he thinks about things. And for her, he's an influence, I think, a positive influence for the most part, because he's, you know, he's just almost as good of a diver as she is. But he's safe. You know, he's she grew up in this environment where her family were basically treasure hunters and you know, you just hop underwater with a half-filled scuba tank and hope there's enough air to make it last. You know, he's a guy who's very methodical, and she's playing this sort of odds game every time she does something that at some point could cost her. He's more calculated, and there's just a lot of these sort of back and forth that I want to put these other characters to sort of, she can influence them in a positive way, 
and they can influence her. And that's part of the story of the growth of the character. Right, right. And which is, um, I think, integral with the growth of the whole series, which you've set mm-hmm. up quite well with what you've got in the three of them. You also give Sloane a pretty interesting family life. I mean, she grew up on boats. You know, her father, who runs this salvage company, barely skirts the law, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is how Sloane approaches her job as a detective. Um, and she co-parents her 12-year-old daughter with a man who, uh, her boyfriend, Run, mm-hmm. who got her pregnant when they were high school seniors. I mean, Run adores Sloane. But she finds it so hard to accept his love. All this makes for a very wonderfully complex protagonist. How did you come up with her? I mean, how did you come up with that thread of her? You know, you've got her very tortured, but not so tortured that it impedes her job. Florida is a very interesting mix in that you have a lot of wealthy people. You, You have communities where, you know, one mile apart, you have multi-million dollar mansions, and you have other people struggling to get by. When you get into the water, you know, you have people who own yachts, and you have people who own, you know, boats that are patched up with flex tape that are, you know, going out to fish partially because they, they need to feed themselves. And that mixture of kind of the extremes is sort of interesting to me. And you go to a high school, you know, I went to a high school where, you know, there would be Porsches in the parking lots, and then there would be kids who had to wear the same clothes every day because, you know, there just wasn't money, you know, to be able to provide. And that kind of can affect your self-esteem and who you see yourself as a bit. And Sloan was a person whose family, their fortunes fluctuated. At one point, she was going to private schools because her family had, you know, done well by, you know, some treasure hunting, and then lost everything. And then she's clearly trying to define who she is on her own terms, and her relationship with Run, her boyfriend, you know, which started in high school, is very sincere, but he comes from a very affluent family from South Florida. And she's always conscious of the fact that she never wants to look opportunistic. She doesn't want to look like, you know, she was trying to level up or whatever. And, you know, she probably way overcompensates for this because he loves her dearly, you know. And, you know, when they, she got pregnant, you know, for him, it's, great. I love you. We, you know, what's has raised a family together. And she's like, I still don't know who I am. You know, I don't just want to become somebody who looks like a clinger onto your family. And she's still overcompensating for that. But part of the dynamics of that relationship is, you know, what we get to watch navigate in the book. Right. Um, you've also put together a great trail of what I call the usual suspects. Um, you've got in their police procedure, they're going after someone, they don't even know who this person is because they don't realize until much later how active he's been and how active he still is in how he murders and where he hides his bodies, all which will be revealed to the reader as they go through the book. And again, every step of the journey, you're kind of looking over your shoulder. Hopefully you're reading with a light on <laughs> and you're not anywhere near the water. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> um, you have a line in your book in which um, Sloan is ruminating about bad guys. And I'm just going to read you the line real quick. It's, damn, there's the thing that's been happening to me lately where I talk to bad guys. I see two different men in front of me. One is a monster. The other is the victim. The victim didn't make the monster, but I'm sure it did nurture him. 
And uh, she goes on, Shulm, who knew right from wrong, kept choosing wrong, but still assuming what he says is true, maybe we shouldn't be surprised given the world he grew up in. Shulm, of course, is one of their leads, and he provides some information for them. Um, and he is someone who is a pedophile. Um, I like the way that you embrace her analysis and its sense of compassion. I would assume that she feels strongly that a crime is a crime, but at the same time, she knows to look deeply into why someone is the way they are. Um, I'm glad you brought that out in this book. And can you talk a little bit about your own research into the psyche of the criminal? Well, it's not a surprise to anyone that when you look at, you know, people who are, you know, do horrific things to other people you find in their past that often then happen to them. And you find, you know, patterns of violence when you're young, abuse, whatever that can be repeated later on. And I'm very clear that we're accountable for what we do. And I think that that's the departure point. And sometimes when some people are hesitant to sort of analyze where things may have been influenced by, because some people are afraid that, well, then does that mean that we have to make it okay or excuse it? And I'm like, no, no, not at all. We're, if we're conscious human beings capable of making choices, we get punished because we make the wrong choice, but it's still helpful to understand, you know, we talk about cycles of abuse, you know, and you look at you know, high percentage of your people who have been convicted killers, et cetera. And you look into their family history and you see that this has been something that's been around their whole life. Had things been differently, maybe things would be different. And, you know, that also can be mapped onto certain forms of abuse, whatever. And for Sloan, her analysis of this is like, if you just divide everybody into slash people for people and monsters, it's hard to be a cop because then you really can't tell who is really who. But really, there are people who do monstrous things and you're really trying to find the monstrous things they did. And by understanding who that person was, then maybe you can, you know, be a better cop in trying to do that. Right. And and maybe that your arrests will be uh, more spot on. You know, you'll be able to target the right person when the time comes. Yeah. And, you know, another thing you hear people say a lot was like when, you know, somebody high profile gets arrested for something that maybe didn't have a record or whatever. People go, I oh, they seem like such a nice person. I didn't know. Like, yeah, they were a nice person. They also were a nice person who did horrible things. <laughs> you know, they, like, it's not like. They wore a mask all the time. It's just that at times their ability to go do something horrific was still there, too. Right, right. You also, um, as a parent, you have her ruminating about when and how she should tell her tween daughter that the world can be a pretty bad place. You know, you have her at the beach and she's thinking about uh, if I saw one of the little children wade out into the ocean, I'd run after them. But what if I saw their mother smoking near them? What if I thought they had an abusive home life? How far do I take it? Do I really want to police the world around me? And um, that's a good question. I'm sure a lot of law enforcement officers have to at some point like <laughs> decide, you know, you, when you see a kid steal a canister of Pringles. And walk out the door with it. Do you arrest the kid? I mean, you know. <laughs> yeah. You did a beautiful job in pulling together her vulnerability, both as a law enforcement officer and a parent and a human being. You know, it's like the gradations of justice. And I know you now, knowing that you came from a family that is in law enforcement, I can see why you see that gradation so clear. Yeah, it's, you know, when, like, I got to watch my brother go from 
patrol officer to federal agent and whatnot. And, you know, fortunately for him, as he had the influence of my father, who, you know, I think did a lot of really good law enforcement and I think set a great example for us. For other people, it can be harder because you're trying to determine, like, when are you a cop? You're not a cop. What does it mean? What is your authority? And it's an uneasy sort of thing. And it's one of the reasons, you know, we're uneasy sometimes around police is because, you know, where does it end? How much control do they have or should they exert? And it's stressful for everybody involved. Yeah. It's nice to be able to see both sides of the fence because it is a very, as they say, thin blue line. And to have that while you're writing about crime, you know, fictional crime, sometimes people take it too far one way or too far the other. And it may be a lack of knowledge because you've been at least steeped in it to some extent where a lot of people have not. Yeah, there's a, you know, we tend to use stereotypes because they're kind of computationally efficient for the way we think. It's sort of this evolutionary sort of reason in which we do it. But like anything that's overly efficient, it leads to mistakes. And sometimes these things are fine. You know, it's like once you pay attention to cliches, you see them everywhere. You watch the movie or the TV show. If you see a corner, they're always going to be eating something because it's always a fun gross-out gag to use it. So you get the corner who's sloppy, likes to eat thing kind of cliche. And then with law enforcement, there's going to be the the hard-edged cop, and there's going to be the sensitive cop, and there's going to be sort of like a very narrow group of stereotypes that we draw from. Yeah, the tropes. (laughs) Yeah, and sometimes they're expedient. Sometimes they just work. Like I, if it just like gets the story done because it's not important, it's fine. But Sometimes it's missing. There's a really great opportunity there to make the story more interesting, have more dimension to it. So I try to pay attention to that. I just try to say, like, you know, how can this cop have a different point of view than the next person, the next person, other than the other one's always wrong? Right. So uh, what's next for Sloan McPherson? So I'm writing the next book, the third book in the series, Sea Storm. And, you know, the first book, the girl beneath the sea was sort of her making this decision towards law. She'd been in law enforcement, but it was more of a part-time kind of thing. And she made this more pivot towards it. And in Black Coral, we get to see her sort of, we see Sloan, the starting out detective who's got good instincts on things and now trying to figure out how to kind of go about this. But she's going to be dealing with more complex cases and she's going to be dealing with, we get into kind of the politics of it all too. We saw that in, uh, Black Coral is that it's just it's one thing you could be if I had all the resources in the world I could solve this guess what you don't have them like if I had the support of everybody I could do this guess what you don't have that and so she has to do that but we're going to get back into some more more of the deep ocean and some more underwater stuff and uh, you know I like any excuse to put her in the water and it is the underwater investigative unit and then anytime I can take experiences like between writing the uh, Girl Beneath the Sea and Black Coral, I shot a Discovery Channel special where I got to swim with great white sharks. And I had some shark stuff in the first one, but I ain't going to do anything really with that in the second book. But now in the third one, I got to take some of my great white experience and put this into the book. Wow. Wow. Which brings up a whole other talent that you have, which is your own diving experience, your own you know, professional diving. Did that happen when you were little? Did you see too much of Flipper? What happened there? <laughs> I I grew up in Florida. Uh, you know, it, 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 my dad always loved the water, and so wherever we lived, we always tried to live near the water. And so when we lived moved to Florida. We lived on a canal, and my dad had a boat. We would, you know, going out to eat on their boat was a regular thing. We hop in the boat and go Fort Lauderdale, go down, you know, to a pier somewhere and go to a restaurant, whatever. That was normal for us. We lived in a neighborhood where people loved a boat, and you know, it wasn't uncommon. 
for us to have our own little neighborhood flotilla. It was a middle class neighborhood, but it was like Florida. People, you know, people love boats. And so we'd have, you know, a little neighborhood flotilla and go do something. And scuba diving came up when I was like 12 or 13. My brother got certified in college and my mom and dad were like, let's go ahead. My dad had been certified years ago. Like, let's go ahead and go do this. It was a family. We went and got our underwater certification and then, uh, you know, would go do diving and stuff. And it's something I would do sporadically for periods of time. I do a bit of it and then I wouldn't do it for years and then kind of get back into it. So, uh, you know, when I did my Shark Week special, I went back and redid my advanced open water course. I did my rebreather course. I just had to go brush up on all this stuff because I just don't do it enough to, you know, feel like reliably like the skills are completely fresh. Right, right. They say it's like a bicycle or driving a car or something. But hey, maybe it's not because you're in the water. (laughs) Well, yeah, because it's like there are certain basics that stay with you. But, you know, when you start doing more technical sort of diving and we do things like when you're using rebreather stuff, you hit that dial wrong, you die. You know, there are things like that where it's literally because you're doing this mix of, you know, you're trying to clean out the uh, the CO2 from your air as you're doing there. And there's a whole chemical process going on and a lot of other things there to get complicated. But, you know, one of the things I learned was just learn how to not panic and just chill and solve a problem. And that's sort of a thing I always try to put in Sloan. And then I've been around like incredible divers, people who just can handle sort of any situation. and you know, that's a whole nother skill set. Right, right. When did you in your mind make the pivot from, I'm going to be a professional magician to, no, I want to be a novelist? I, it was never one or the other. As a kid, I always loved storytelling. And I really, as a kid, I was a big fan of like Isaac Asimov and Robert Heinlein. And, and I looked at the prolific amount of work that Isaac Asimov had. And that was kind of a goal was one day, like one day I'll be a writer. One day I'll be a writer. And you know, you find yourself decades later saying, yeah, one day I'll write. And I'm like, man, I better do this now. Cause I don't know when I'm going to do this. And at the same time, as I was doing this, I was in the middle of TV. Like I started with self-publishing and then two years later, I think it was, I got picked up by uh, Harper Collins. And so, I had my first published novel was the same year my first TV series came out. And so the same time I'm on A&E doing magic and messing with people, I have a book at airport bookstores and stuff. And so that was sort of this thing where it was both things were going on at the same time. And the writing came out because I just wanted a new way to communicate, to tell stories and to create content. That is great synergy right there. <laughs> but it's also kismet when you think about it. Yeah, it's my dad always knew I was going to be a writer. My dad always knew. My dad always was my biggest champion. And so, you know, he, he was telling me like, hey, well, your imagination, you know, you should be a writer. You should be a writer. And it, it's fine that somebody tells you that. But it took me a long time to think that I could do it. Though. I was I knew professional writers and they were very different people than me. And I once had a conversation with somebody I really respected. who was a great writer who had mused like, you know, all the really good writers I know, they're all musically inclined. And he goes, he's, well, I wonder why that is. And I'm sitting here thinking, I am not musically inclined. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, and I'm like, I guess no writing for Andrew. <laughs> well, he led you off in the wrong direction. I think that you're a fabulous writer. Illusion is part of your makeup. How did you use it to help you make the transition into writing novels? I know that you wrote nonfiction previously, a lot of books on magic, but it's almost like you unfold on each page something that the reader hasn't seen before, but moves them forward in the story. Oh, wow. Well, thank you. A really good magic effect is something that has a story to it. And, you know, that is you watch a person trying to solve a problem. If a magician just says, pick a card, now I'll find it. 
that's okay. But if like, you know, somebody selects a card and then if the spectator volunteers and says, can I shuffle them? Now we have a complication, something that the magician wasn't expecting. And now the magician's in this position. Should they let them shuffle the cards? Would they be able to do their trick? And then if they shuffle, the spectator shuffles the cards, then all of a sudden, still kind of a boring trick, but it's still more interesting because things weren't linear. And that was one of the things I learned in magic was if you wanted to be really entertaining, you needed to make things a bit nonlinear. You need you know, good storytelling. And so I was lucky to work for people like Penn and Teller and David Copperfield and to see what set them apart from everybody else. And that was the essence of it. The essence was they understood there's one thing to say, I will make an apple appear in my hand. There's another thing where you create a conflict in a situation and the magic is the resolution to it. And then when I got into storytelling, I'm like, this is the same thing. It's just, I need to create a conflict. I need to make it look like there's no way this can get resolved with the character's present skill set or knowledge or whatever. And then, you know, find a way to solve this and then have the answer in the end be something that makes sense all along. Andrew Main's latest thriller, Black Coral, is available now through Amazon. You can also order it at your local bookstore. This is Josie Brown with Author Provocateur.